All right, open your Bible to the Gospel of John. We finished Matthew last week. I'm sorry, I don't know where that came from. We finished Genesis last week. Um, We hadn't started Matthew. Um, We finished Genesis, 50 chapters of Genesis. Um, Genesis is absolutely one of my favorite books of the Bible. It is just an amazing, an amazing record of who God is and what he does. Um, Yesterday was um, Reformation Day. I know for a lot of you, yesterday was Halloween. But yesterday was Reformation Day. And um, last Sunday, not this Sunday, last Sunday actually was Reformation Sunday. It's always the last Sunday in October. Um, And I want to talk to you today about Reformation and truth. How many of you, how many of you... um, I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hands, but now I would, I would be curious to know how many people actually know anything about the Reformation um, that's meaningful. Most, I, I think most Christians, many, many, I'm going to say many Christians don't really know much about the Reformation and uh, the meaning behind it. And uh, I'm not going to talk really a lot about the Reformation today, but I'm going to talk about Reformation And what caused the Reformation to take place was a a war that was waged over truth. It was really a one-sided war because it wasn't so much that one side thought they had the truth and the other side thought they had the truth. One side was standing for the truth and the other side just didn't care about the truth. They were more interested in preserving their system of power that ruled basically the world at that time. So I want to read first from the scripture. I want you to go to John chapter 8. And I'm going to read to you the words of Jesus from John 8, 31 through John 8, 36. Let me make sure I'm in the right place. I'm not in the right place. Now I'm in the right place. John 8, 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Let me just say, when Jesus, when you see the word indeed translated in your Bible, it's a Greek term, it's transliteration that that emphasizes, there's an emphasis there. You are my, it's not just you are my disciples. But truly, truly, you are my disciples. Jesus is affirming. There's an emphasis here that if you abide, if you abide in my word, you are truly, truly my disciples. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. And have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say we will be made free? Jesus answered them again. Most assuredly. Truly, truly, I say to you. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. 
And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Paul goes on in his writings and he basically says, we were, he says to the Gentiles, he says, you are slaves, but God made you sons. You were slaves excluded from the house, but God made you sons and has brought you into the house to be a son forever. And not just a son forever, but an heir, a co-heir with his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of that, the promise of that, the reality of that is lost on most people who call themselves Christian. And that is very unfortunate. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And in verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How dare you say that we are anyone's slave? How dare you demean us like that? That was their, that was their attitude. They were genuinely angry to the point that they were ready to kill Jesus. And they did. These very same people, along with all the rest of us, were responsible for the death of Jesus. On October 31st, 1517, a man named Martin Luther... I was talking to someone yesterday, and uh, they they called me, and and uh, this person is this person is um, on a journey to faith in Christ. This person doesn't live in Taylor; uh, it's just someone I happen to meet, and we have a relationship basically by phone. And this person called me yesterday, and he said, "Happy Halloween." I said, "Well, happy Halloween to you too." And we're talking, and I said, well, are you dressing up for Halloween? He's an older gentleman. He laughed. And uh, I said, well, happy Reformation Day. He said, what's that? I said, today is Reformation Day. What, what, what's Reformation Day? And I said, well, I said, uh, have you ever heard of Martin Luther? He said, Martin Luther King? I said, I said no, the guy Martin Luther King was named after. <laughs> no, I didn't know. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. It was kind of interesting. But a guy named Martin Luther posted what was called his 95 Thesis on the door of Wittenberg Castle in Germany, in Wittenberg, Germany. And Martin Luther did this to spark a debate. Now what was going to happen on November 1st, 1517 was the Roman Catholic Church was bringing in a display of freshly um, obtained relics. In other words, it was pieces, body parts. We have the um, tip of the little finger of the Apostle John. How much would you be willing to pay for that? Because if you had the tip of the little finger of the Apostle John, God would surely bless you mightily. Do you think it'd be worth several hundred, several thousand dollars to have the, 
How many pieces of gold? How much gold? How much silver? This is how the Catholic Church raised money to pay for Michelangelo and Raphael and these guys and to build their buildings. This is what they did. And they'd take these relics like, like museum um, displays all over Europe and they would offer relics or they would, they would let people come and they would have to pay to touch the relic and to receive a blessing from the priest after they touched the relic. And Martin Luther knew that display was coming to Wittenberg Castle. And so the day before, he writes out 95 points from the scripture telling the church why what you're doing is corrupt and wrong and completely unscriptural. And he puts it on the community bulletin board, which was the door of the castle there. And he posts that thinking he's going to get a discussion stirred up and instead... He started a civil war. But more than that, more importantly, the Spirit of God took what Martin Luther hoped would be a discussion and he turned it into a reformation. The Protestant Reformation is often simply referred to as the Reformation. It was a schism from the Roman Catholic Church initiated by Martin Luther, John Calvin, Huldrych Zwingli, and other early Protestant reformers in the 16th century, in the 1500s. But it wasn't Luther and Calvin and Zwingli who were the first people. There were other men. John Wycliffe, have you ever heard of the Wycliffe Bible translators? Still a group today, they take the Bible, and they translate it into native languages. They're called the the Wycliffe Bible Translators because John Wycliffe, who lived in England, thought that the Bible should be translated into the common language of the people. But the Roman Catholic Church didn't think it should be. They thought it was dangerous for the people to have the Scripture because the people might begin to interpret the Scripture on their own. Wycliffe said, the people need the scripture, they need to interpret the scripture, and the Holy Spirit will help them. And if we put it in their common language and they can read it, then the Spirit of God can bring revelation to them. But see, at that time, the church thought the only revelation that came could come through the clerics, the pope, his cardinals, the bishops, the priests. And they were holy by the fact that they held an office. Wycliffe wrote and taught against this. He died in 1384. But a few years later, there was a guy named Jan Hus. He was a good Bohemian. I'm half Bohemian. That was when Bohemia was a kingdom It wasn't called Czechoslovakia back then. It was Bohemia and all these different states. And John Huss was a Bohemian monk. I don't even know that John Huss, actually John Huss was not a monk, I don't think. Wycliffe and Huss, they actually were against 
monasticism. They didn't think monks should be locked up in buildings and castles, separated from everybody else. They needed to be out, letting their light shine. And Huss was greatly impacted by Wycliffe. And Huss used, he was a priest, Huss used his pulpit to preach against the corruption of the priest and the bishops and the cardinals and the pope. Now, you got to remember in the 1300s, in the early 1400s, the Roman Catholic Church ruled the world. The priesthood was greater than the, the sovereigns. The kings bowed to the pope. The Pope dictated to the King of England. He dictated to the King of Bohemia. He dictated to the King of Germany. He dictated to all of these kingdoms. And the Reformation changed that. And men like Wycliffe and Huss said, the corruption is not right. Wycliffe said, the scripture, the authority of scripture should rule everything. Huss said, the authority of scripture should rule everything. I'm in part talking to you today about this because we're going to have a guy who's experienced persecution in real time on the ground with us next week who deals with people who are still experiencing persecution real time and on the ground. Real persecution. Not disapproval, but persecution. We get upset in America because we experience disapproval. John Huss was begged for years, just compromise, just get along. Just, he said, no, I won't compromise. Here's what he said when the Italian prelate pronounced the sentence of condemnation upon Huss in his writings. Huss protested saying that even at this hour, he did not wish anything but to be convinced from the scripture. He said, if you would just bring the scripture to me and show me where what I am telling you, what I am demanding that we all do is submit to the word of God. If you just would come and bring the scripture and tell me, he said, I'm good with that. But the church couldn't do that because their practices were not based on the scripture. So after Huss's refusal to recant, they took him to the place of execution. He knelt down, he spread out his hands, he prayed aloud. The executioner undressed him, tied his hands behind his back with ropes, and tied his neck to a stake with chains. And then they stacked hay and wood up to his neck, surrounding him at the stake. And they lit the pile on fire, at the last moment before they put the torch to the pile, the imperial marshal asked Huss to recant and thus save his own life. And this is what John Huss said in response to that plea. If you'll just recant, you can save your life. Huss says, God is my witness that the things charged against me I never preached. In the same truth of the gospel which I have written taught and preached, drawing upon the sayings and positions of the holy doctors, I am ready to die today. 
and they lit him on fire and they burned him to ashes and they took his ashes and they threw them in the Rhine River. John Wycliffe, that was in 1415. John Wycliffe died in 1384. He wasn't executed. He died of a stroke. But 21 years later, the church declared that Wycliffe and his writings were heretical, which meant that Wycliffe was stripped of everything. His writings were banned. You, it was against the law to read them. It was against the law to promote them, to preach them, to teach them. And they did the best they could to gather them up and burn them. And then seven years later, the order from the Pope came down because Wycliffe was a heretic. They dug his body up 28 years after he was buried in the church cemetery. They dug his body up. They burned what was left to ashes and they threw his ashes in the river Swift. I guess they thought that if you throw the ashes in the river, maybe God's not powerful enough to bring it back together in resurrection. Of course, he was a heretic, so he would not have been counted one worthy of resurrection. And why, why am I even bothering to talk about this today? Do you not see that Jesus, in addressing the Pharisees, was addressing the very same problem in the Pharisees that Wycliffe and Huss and Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and many other men addressed with the men of their day who were in a position of power in the church. And men like Wycliffe and Huss and Luther and Calvin would not compromise truth even in the face of a world power that would gladly take their lives to preserve its position of authority and power. And they did that with many, many people who opposed them. Today in America, the church does not face death but what we do face is disapproval. And for the sake of popular approval, many are willing to compromise truth. When those who call themselves the church are willing to risk the disapproval of God for the approval of man, church, it's time for a reformation. When we are willing, for the sake of popular approval, when we're willing to call Good, evil, and evil, good. When we're willing to ignore the clear commands of Scripture and we justify it in saying, well, we've got to be tolerant. We've got to be accepting. You can take this to any level you want. You can take it to the level of Washington, D.C. and national policy, or you can take it to the level of your, your bedroom, your most intimate place, and how you deal with the people that you have to live with every day. If you're willing to compromise truth for the sake of man's approval, the Bible calls that sin. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how poor you are. I don't care whether you think you're a victim or a victor. When you're willing to compromise truth for the approval of man and risk the disapproval of God, there is no other thing we can call that except sin. Now we call it all kinds of things today. We call it peer pressure. We call it um, economic realities. We call it political realities. We call it political correctness. Well, I know that's true, but you know, we can't say that. Really, why not? 
Well, because if you say that, you know, then uh, people are going to take it the wrong way. Really? Maybe they should take it the wrong way. Maybe when we call sin, they should take it exactly the way God wants it to be taken. Maybe it should hurt them, prick them, discomfort them. Because when the truth is spoken, that's what it is supposed to do. If you're living a lie and the truth is declared to you, it better prick you, it better discomfort you, it better hurt you and break you to the point that you come broken to God and say, God, I repent of my sin, I repent of my lying, I repent of my compromising, I repent of my stealing, I repent of my adultery, I repent of my lust, I repent whatever it is. I repent of my idolatry of mammon over my love of God. I repent of loving man's approval more than desiring your approval. That's what the truth is supposed to do. That's why we are not suggested, but we are commanded to preach truth. But let me finish. Let me continue before I get off track here. Because we got lunch to eat today. Man, we got a great lunch. I'm telling you, please stay. We're going to have such a wonderful lunch today. Because I know some of the things that have been cooked for us to eat. And I'm really kind of excited about it myself. Just to let you know. So we can look at the Reformation from a historical point of view and learn much. But if we fail to apply those same truths with the same commitment to our own life in our own local church body, we will suffer from the same sin and indifference that defined the church in 1517. Or, let's go farther back than the Reformation. Let's go back to the day Jesus stood in the face of these Pharisees who were indifferent to the Scripture, who said, How dare you, Jesus! Tell us that we need to be made free because we are the seed of Abraham and we have never been enslaved to anyone as they are enslaved to the Roman Empire. Go figure that. But see, that's not the way they saw it. Because see, they'd worked a deal with Rome. Hey, you let us do our thing. We'll, We'll watch your back, you watch our back. And the leaders of the day had worked a deal with the powers of Rome which just continued on all the way up to 1517. The history of the Roman Catholic Church is very much the history of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire went from being a military, ruled by military might, and it began to use religion to manipulate and empower itself. Now, I'm not saying I'm anti-Catholic. Half my family's Catholic. I'm talking about the historical realities of the Roman Catholic Church and what happened with the Reformation and why there was a Reformation. And it mirrored the very things that Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day. When Jesus said, the fact that you are the descendants of Abraham means absolutely nothing. God is able to raise up descendants from the rocks around you.
just like in the day of the Reformation, the fact that I would wear clerical robes as a priest did not automatically make me holy and exempt me, which means I could live my life any way I wanted and I could hide behind my clerical robes. And that's what was happening. The Jews saying, we are descendants of Abraham, watch what you say, would be the same thing as the priest of Martin Luther's day saying, we are priests of God. Do you see the robe? Do you see the clerical garb? Watch what you say. I'm holy because I am God's ordained priest. Martin Luther would say, you're not holy because you're God's ordained priest. You're corrupt. That makes you even more corrupt than if you weren't a priest in doing the things you were doing. Just like I think that's true today. I'm not more holy because I'm a pastor. But I do believe this. That my sinfulness and my corruption should be seen differently and held to a higher standard even than someone who's not a pastor. And the Bible bears that out. The Bible says, don't let many of you seek to be teachers very quickly because you will be held to a higher standard. In other words, what the writer of Scripture was saying Teachers, beware. You better fear God more than you, be, than you fear men because you will be held to a standard higher than the people you are teaching. Compromise can be very easy. It's often practiced as the lesser of other evils. We hear things like, don't cause a stir, don't rock the boat, don't get involved, don't speak up. Just let God handle that. Well, maybe God's going to handle it through your words and through your actions. What if Martin Luther would have said, well, just, well, God will handle that. Yeah, I'm sure God would have, but he would have used a man to do it. That'd be like us saying, look, don't worry about preaching the gospel. Just let God handle that. Well, how has God chosen to handle that? He said, the gospel shall be preached through the mouth of men. Paul writes about this in, 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 his, uh, in Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How are they going to hear if there's not someone preaching? How are they going to preach if no one is sent? How are they going to believe in what they haven't heard? How are they going to embrace what they do not know? So it, it's more than likely that God wants to use you and me to work through. I think history has borne that out. I think the scripture bears that out. God didn't go to Egypt and save Jacob and the children of Israel. He sent Joseph there as a slave and let Joseph think for 22 years, or at least for, at least for 17 years, he let Joseph think at least for 17 years that he was just the victim of this great injustice. And then one day, Joseph has a revelation. It wasn't a great injustice. This was, the, this was the plan of God. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We have example after example throughout the scripture that God uses men and women to do his work in the earth. So we can't just say, well, let God take care of that. No, you might be the very vessel God uses to take care of that. 
and many other things. God has always used reformers to bring about reformation. He did, through, he did this throughout, throughout all the scripture. He did it throughout Israel's history. Think of men like Noah. You might not think of Noah as a reformer, but I, you know, Noah's, Noah brought about one of the greatest reformations ever. He caused the whole world to be destroyed by building that ark. God let him build that ark. God commanded him to build that ark. And once that ark was built, God brought a reformation, we might say. Men like Noah, or Joseph, or Moses, or Joshua, or David, or Josiah, Ezra, and Nehemiah. All of these men are reformers. John the Baptist was a reformer. He was such a good reformer that it cost him his head on a platter. And then the greatest reformer of all is Jesus. And you all know what happened to Jesus. We could go on through our history. We could go on and look and see that God has always used reformers to bring about reformation. So what is the point of reformation? The point of being reformed is to be conformed. So Paul writes this in his letter to the Romans. Let's, let's just flip over there real quickly if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do. That's another thing. Get, you really should get in the habit of bringing your Bible to church so you can write in it and make notes in it. Maybe you need a notepad. Romans chapter 8 Let's read, uh, let's start in verse 28. I love this verse. It's, it's, it's such a great promise, one that we should trust in absolutely, completely. Never question the truth behind this promise, Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? To be conformed to the image of his son. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What's the destiny of a Christian? Your destiny, child of God, is to be conformed to the image of the son. And that will happen. The spirit of God will make sure that you will be utterly and completely conformed to the image of the Son of God. You might go through hell here on earth, but don't look at the hell you're going through. Look at the glory that God is taking you and conforming you to. It is the glory of the Son of God. That's the point of reformation, is to be conformed. To the image of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In case you didn't realize this, Jesus in his day was considered a radical. He was considered rebellious, scandalous, heretical, dangerous to his contemporaries and their power and influence. And the only solution they could come up with for Jesus was to eliminate him. 
i.e. death. And they did it. Let me read another scripture to you. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Let me let you in on some truth. Let me qualify what I'm getting ready to read to you right here. Hold on. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. I want you to understand what I'm about to read to you doesn't have anything to do with what the Spirit of God might whisper in your ear about a car or a house or a boat or winning the lottery or getting some sweet blessing. That's not what this scripture is about. If you think this scripture is about something like that, then you have underestimated the power and the majesty of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. If we are if we are relegated to be satisfied with earthly, carnal, natural, temporal blessings when what God has given us in Christ is spiritual and eternal and glorious beyond all imagination. Listen to what Paul says about what was accomplished for us in the cross of Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Did you catch that, church? Which God ordained before the ages. That means before the sun, the moon, and the stars, God ordained this mystery, mysterious thing for our glory, Paul writes. Verse 8, which none, none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us, through His Spirit. Where are those things? They are in Christ. What has God revealed to us through His Spirit? He has revealed the mysterious plan before the ages that He would send His glorious only begotten Son to die on a cross, to take upon Himself the wrath of God that God might redeem for Himself a people and join that people to Him in life and become one with that people for all eternity and hold that redeemed people up as a trophy of grace as a reason to give praise and thanksgiving to the God of all glory. And had the rulers of this age known what would have actually been accomplished through the crucifixion of Jesus, they didn't get rid of a problem. They brought about their own destruction and they brought about the fulfillment of the glorious plan of God. And in the cross of Christ, what the enemies of Christ thought they were doing in destroying the Son of God, they were actually destroying themselves and every plan and every purpose that they had cooked up in their twisted and wicked hearts, which originated 
back with the serpent. And this is why John says, for this reason, the Son of God was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. So the point of being reformed is to be conformed to the image of the Son. In America, we're not to the point of practicing public assassination or execution for those seeking radical reform. Instead, we practice character assassination. John writes in Revelation 12, verse 11, concerning the saints of God who would not compromise their faith or the truth of God. He writes, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. Recant now, deny the truth, deny Christ and you can live. We will not. Are you ready to die for the truth? Don't be careful before you say yes. It's easy to say yes. I find little evidence in much of the church in America that people are willing to die, lay down their literal lives for the truth because many people can't even handle the disapproval of their peers. We're more worried about what people are going to say about us, what people are going to think about us. If we can't get past that, how will we ever lay down our life? They love not their lives unto death. When we look at at much of the professed church in America today, down to our own community, we see that too many are not willing to sacrifice their popular approval. How much less willing are they to sacrifice their life? I don't know the answer to that question, but it's a question we should be asking. Many, Many of you would say, I would die for my country or I would die for my family, but would you die for the truth? Would you die for Christ? Would you die for the church? Would you die for the body of Christ? Would you die for the truth and the faith that's been once and for all delivered to you through Jesus Christ? Church attendance is trending down nationally. And when I see how many people can't make it to a worship service on Sunday, I have to wonder how many would be willing to lay down their life for the gospel. I've had people say, I've talked, you know, this is, of course, this is not a new conversation. We saw this on, after 9-11 in 2001. The week after 9-11, the Sunday after 9-11, churches were overflowing. It lasted about two weeks. And after the first week, you could see the decline drastically taking place. I've had people say, that when, when it gets that bad, Americans are going to rally. But why do we want to wait till it gets that bad? If the government, I believe this, if the government announced today that church is now outlawed in America, I believe next Sunday the churches would be packed out. I believe there'd be standing room only for people waiting to get in the door just so they could prove a point that you can't do that in America. And once church was made legal again, guess where all those people are going to go? They're going to go back, right back to where they were before. And you think, you think God would be pleased with that? Is that what God wants? 
No. Is that what Jesus died for? No. I promise you that's not what Jesus died for. That is exactly what Israel did. They rallied in judgment. When God's judgment came, they rallied. They repented. Oh, God, we're so sorry. They got hot for God. Then when it all subsided, they went right back to their idolatry. We should not be coming to worship out of a protest of our government. We should not be coming to worship because we're hoping God will do something favorable for us. Because when we do that, our worship is pointed in the wrong direction. It's about the wrong thing. There's only one reason you should be here, and that is to worship God. And in worshiping God, you are building up the body of Christ. People say, well, you know, I can worship God out at the lake. I can worship God. I heard a guy yesterday on the radio says, I, 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 there's only two things you should do on your knees on Sunday morning. That's pray and garden. And I do both of them at the same time. Ha, 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 ha. I love to listen to him for his gardening advice, but his theology stinks. Because Jesus didn't die so you could be on your knees in the garden and kill two birds with one stone. Well, I'm going to worship you and get my gardening done here, Jesus. No, you weren't saved to live your life alone and apart from the body of Christ. There's a reason why we are here. There's a reason why we are commanded. Listen to me, church. Commanded not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's not a suggestion. That is a commandment. And the reason that is commanded is because your worship speaks first and foremost about who God is. It's not about you, it's about Him. But in being about Him, it absolutely benefits you in more ways than you could ever imagine. But if your focus is all about you, if your focus is all about your desires and your wants, your comfort, your convenience, You've missed the point of why we're here. We should find our greatest joy in worshiping God. It, it, should, it should just go hand in hand. Worship, joy, joy, worship. This is why Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You know when he writes that? This is the importance of reading your Bible in context. He writes that in the beginning of that chapter, he says, he names two Greek women who are at odds with each other. He says, you men who are spiritual, help these women work this out so that there can be peace and unity. And he goes on and he says, rejoice in the Lord always. If you've got something, he says, don't be anxious for anything. But if you're anxious for something, take it to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving. In other words, stop focusing on the thing you're anxious about and begin to focus on the Lord and take the thing that you're anxious about and give it to the Lord with thanksgiving. So that person that you're having trouble with, husbands, wives, parents, children, employers and employees, neighbors. 
Can you take that situation, can you take that person to the Lord and offer thanks for them, genuine thanks? I know I've got a problem, a real problem, a sin problem. And I'm telling you this from experience. When people have wronged me unjustly, and I feel the, the pain and the hurt of that, it's, it's, I'm just being honest with you. It's not the easiest thing to take them to the Lord with a heart of thanksgiving. Oh, I'm so thankful for this person that's falsely accused me, God. I'm so thankful for this person that's spreading lies and rumors and all kinds of heinous things about me. I'm just really thankful for them. When I find myself having difficulty going to the Lord in prayer with a heart of thanksgiving, not justifying what they're doing, but there's a balance here. When I can't get past the offense, I know that it's time for me to look at my heart. Because no one has ever been offended more than Jesus was offended. No one has ever been persecuted more than Jesus has been persecuted. No one has ever been unjustly accused more than Jesus was unjustly accused. And my heart issue, my sin issue in my heart is not justified by anything someone out here has done to me. I'm not saying justice doesn't need to be done. I'm saying the fact that there needs to be justice done does not justify sin in my heart. Do you get me? I can pray for justice. I can pray that God would deal with those who are acting unjustly and acting sinfully. But that reality does not justify sin in my own heart. There is a righteous way to be angry. There is an unrighteous way to be angry. It's a fine line. Make sure you're not falling on the other side, the wrong side of that line. God does not suggest our worship. He commands it. God has established and ordained the corporate worship of his body. He has given us the scripture as the means by which he has chosen to bring revelation to us through the power of his Holy Spirit. If you're depending on God to whisper in your ear, to appear to you at night in your dreams, to tell you what you should do, repent of that sin right now. And get in the Bible and learn who God is based on the revelation he has given us of his son in this holy and inspired scripture that is without error in its original form, that is absolutely and completely trustworthy, that you and I have no right to pick and choose what we will believe, what we will preach, what we will teach, what we will abide by. No, sir. You can't do it. You can, but I don't advise it. So 
So we need a reformation to take place in our hearts and in our minds. And that need is not limited to Christ fellowship. It's not exclusive of Christ fellowship. I talk a lot in generalities. And I say the church in America. And, and when I say the church in America, I, I mean that to include Christ fellowship. But sometimes I need to be more pointed. And I say, you know what? Forget the church in America because I'm not pastor to the American church. I'm pastor to Christ Fellowship Church. So what the American church or what the worldwide church is doing, I have no power over except to pray that God would move by his spirit. But God has put me in Taylor, Texas. He has made me the pastor of Christ Fellowship Church and I am charged immediately to charge you and to challenge you And to say to you that we need a reformation in our hearts and in our minds. How do I know that is true? Because I'm extremely involved in this community. And I see things and I know things. I work in situations. I'm privy to things. And all I can do is shake my head and say, God, help us. This city needs Jesus. But here's the thing. Every city needs Jesus. Every neighborhood needs Jesus. Every church needs Jesus. Some of them think they've got Jesus, and I'm telling you what, they don't have Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. The work of the church and its leaders should be more like boot camp than summer camp. You understand what I'm saying? How many of you have ever been to summer camp? It's great fun. Love summer camp. Love the go-karts, love the water slide, love the volleyball, love the tug of war. Love all that. Fun and games. It's not reality. It's not reality. It's not meant to be reality. Summer camp is not meant to be reality. Summer camp is a vacation from reality. But we take kids to summer camp and we want kids to get on fire for Jesus and then we wonder why about two weeks after summer camp, the fire's gone. Now, I've never been in the military. My dad was a World War II vet. And I can remember my dad, I can remember this one story. When he was in boot camp, they would put a big group of guys, they'd round them up and they'd they'd cordon off an area. And here's how this worked. The last man standing wins. And they would just let these guys, and this is what they made them do, They they would just encourage these guys to go in there and do whatever it took to be the last man standing. No rules. You know why they did that? They said, you go over to Europe and you're fighting the Germans. You're not going to be able to say, oh, wait, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Nazi soldier. You know, that's against the rules. You can't kick. You can't pull my hair. That's against the rules. No, they said, there are no rules in combat. In combat, What counts is survival. So you guys get in there, and we want to see who wants to really survive. 
Now, that wouldn't make it in today's military. You couldn't do that. There'd be a lawsuit. There'd be lawyers making millions of dollars. And someone would lose their job. And someone would be unjustly promoted because political correctness. And, but, you know, that's back in the day when the world was desperate to defeat evil that was bound to take over the world. And they knew that evil didn't play by the rules. So when I say church and its leaders should be more like boot camp than summer camp, this is what I mean. At summer camp, you're not learning how to survive against an enemy that does not play by the rules. But in boot camp, even in today's military, as politically correct as it is, they try to put you in situations that are as close to the real thing so that when you get into and encounter the real thing, you are equipped to handle the situation and hopefully you're going to come out a survivor living and not a casualty in a statistic they talk about on the evening news. You get what I'm saying? How in the world we have come to believe that church should be more like summer camp, it should be more about entertainment than equipping, I don't know how. Well, I do know how because we have bought the lie because we're more worried about men's approval than we are about men's survival. Are you hearing me? If you realize that the war we're engaged in is a real war with life and death consequences, you'd be more concerned about survival than entertainment. Yet I've never, ever had someone come to me and say, Pastor, I'm leaving the church because it's just, it's just too entertaining for me. Usually it's the opposite. Why do you have to be so deep? Why do you have to, you know, why do you have to use so much scripture? Why can't you, I've had several people tell me this, why can't you be like Joel Osteen and tell a joke? I don't know. You know, I had a brother-in-law that just, man, he could, he could sit for hours and tell you joke after joke after joke, and I'd always say, man, I wish I could just, I wish I could just remember one joke a day, but I, I don't, <laughs> you know? I, I, you could tell me a joke right now, and we'd go next door and eat lunch, and I probably wouldn't remember it. I don't, it's just, you know? I, I can, though, somehow remember Scripture. I can remember scripture a lot easier than I can remember jokes. Some people wish I remembered more jokes than I did scripture. But I promise you, if you've got to forget something, forget the jokes and remember the scripture because the scripture will save your life. The joke's not going to save you on the battlefield. This truth will save you. It will carry you. Don't be ashamed of the truth. Don't live with the sin of indifference. Do you know that's the greatest sin plaguing the church in America? It's the sin of indifference. It's not that people, I talked to someone last night and they said, you know what grieves my heart? It's people come, they want to come, hear a good sermon, but that's it. There's no overflow, there's no spillover. There's no desire to evangelize. There's no desire to see Jesus magnified. It's just, well, I want a good sermon, you know. And when it's not good, when it's not up to par, boy, they'll let you know.
Jesus didn't appoint pastors to the church. He didn't give the gift of pastors or prophets or evangelists or apostles or teachers to the church for any other reason except to equip you for the work of ministry. And the work of ministry is hard. Period. It's also extremely discouraging while being one of the most joyful and encouraging things I've ever done. The work of ministry is the most discouraging thing I've ever been involved in. It's the most joyful and exhilarating and motivating thing I've ever been involved in. It's just that in the discouraging times, you have to remind yourself. <laughs> Church, we're in a war. And there are times in a war when you're hot on the front lines and it is survival, desperation time. And you have an enemy that will do anything, break any rule, violate any law to defeat you. And if you don't know God's word, if you don't have the spirit of God, if you have not equipped yourself with what God has given you, through the weapons of the Spirit and the Word of God, you're going to have a tough time. There are other times in warfare when you're not on the front line, when you are given R&R, when you are pulled back. But to think that in a time of war we never experience hardship, we never go through unpleasant times or inconvenient times, that's just foolishness. Paul says that we are in a spiritual battle the, that we battle not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities and we have been commanded to arm ourselves and we have been commanded to stand and having done all therefore stand keep standing he didn't say stand until you get tired keep standing he didn't say stand until it starts raining Keep standing. Stand. And having done all, therefore, stand. Well, I'm going to stop there. Though I haven't finished, if you can believe that. And y'all probably don't believe that. But I'm going to stop there. If you want me to tell you the rest of it later, just get with me. I'll be happy to do that. I want us to pray. Read Psalm 18 and look at the language the psalmist uses. It's language of warfare. We'll talk some more about this in a couple of weeks, I feel certain. But let's all stand right now. In the military, when you take off without permission, they call it absent without leave. It's a serious crime. In the church, we think that that is just the way it is. And it's a crime to say anything about it. I want to encourage you 
to seek the Lord and to ask God to give you a revelation of the gravity of what we are involved in. That this is not a game. This is a war. We're not here at summer camp. This needs to be boot camp because when you walk out these doors, you're going into hostile territory. And what you do and how you live your life and the spillover of the gospel from your life to other people has absolute life and death consequences. And I mean that in every sense of the word. And if I didn't tell you If I told you anything otherwise, I would do you a disservice as your pastor. So Father, I pray that you would help us to wade through the clutter and the distractions that litter our life. Lord, we are a people so easily distracted, so easily taken off task. The enemy has become so proficient at dangling things before us to get our eyes off of the prize, to get our minds off of what is truly, what truly should be the focus. We're in the midst of a warfare and somehow we have been convinced that we're living in a carnival while people all around us die. Father, I pray that you would break our hearts, bring us to repentance. And when that becomes so painful, we feel like that we cannot take it any longer and we question whether you even love us anymore, I pray that you would, in your grace, remind us that we were not created to be served by you but we were created to serve you. The gospel was given to us not to put in a box and keep for our own blessing. The gospel was given to us that we might freely share it with all. And Christ in me that is the hope of glory has not been put within me as a light for me to hide but a light that is to shine into the darkness and dispel it and change it and transform it by the power of your spirit. God, forgive us for the sin of indifference and apathy and self-seeking and self-focus deliver us from those things and fix our eyes on you and on the mission and the commission you've given us and commanded us to fulfill. I pray that we would fulfill that until our death or until you come again, whichever comes first, but we would not stop until one of those happens. I pray this, that you would, above all things, be glorified. Father, as we go next door to eat this wonderful lunch that's been prepared for us, I pray that you bless it. Let it be nourishment to our bodies. I pray that your people would give generously today to the missions that we support and that our fellowship and our conversation would bring glory and honor to you.
In Jesus' name, amen.